music's really loud, um, all those kind of things. You're like, hey, this is really exciting. And the next thing you see is a bruised and beaten and scarred man on a cross. And then immediately, where do you go to this like, oh, right? I mean, if you all of us have some experience with this. If you've grown up in church, you have a lot of experience in this. Um, if you didn't grow up in church, you still have, have heard about the passion of Christ. You're familiar. We all talk about Jesus dying on a cross. And for some reason, instinctively, one of a couple things happens for us. If, if, you're, if you're a churchgoer, if you grew up in church, the thing that goes off in you is immediately you have this, like, this sense of sadness, right? Like, oh, like you hear that, you know, my God, my God, talking, Jesus talking to his dad, saying, why have you forsaken me? In other words, why have you turned your back on me? And then you see Jesus saying, hey, forgive them. They know not what they do. But then you still see, like, the crown of thorns. And there's just, like, this, this immense sadness, Right? And if you don't believe in that story, you basically look at it and you say, wow, here they are again, trying to control me with my emotions, trying to press my emotions to convince me of something. And, and so there's just like this real gray area for all of us when it comes to the cross. And as we get prepared for Easter coming in a couple of weeks, as we get prepared for Good Friday night of worship, which will be happening in a couple of weeks, I just want us to be a, a week ahead on this deal. This week, we're going to deal with Jesus on the cross. Next year, I'm ready to celebrate that Jesus is, or, you know, he is risen. And y'all are going to say, he is risen indeed, you know, and all those kind of things. But we're going to do it a week early, not on Easter. We're going to do it the week before Easter. Um, and because on Easter Sunday, we're going to start the book of Acts. We're going to be walking through it because we're going to say, what does it really look like? Why did Jesus come back to life? And so we got a lot to cover. Over, and what did he do? And what did he prove? And what does that mean for us? And now what should we do? Um, basically, the book of Acts is a story on starting churches. And which is what we're kind of in the middle of here. And so uh, we'll work through those things. But today, I just want us to spend some time kind of relieving you of the emotion that you're supposed to somehow feel sadness when you see that. I understand. It's gruesome. It's horrifying. It's hard to see. It's hard to receive. It's all those things. I can remember going to Easter plays, right? Like my, my dad was a... Um, a music minister, so there's a big Easter cantata every year that my dad kind of organized, and you know it has like the there's those moments in it, that, uh, specific moments where you where it's all quiet, and you see Jesus on the cross, and you hear like I could still hear that sound of the hammer hitting the nail, and while I know the guy's hands aren't really going through, there's just something about that piercing sound that I was like oh, you know, and there's just that part of us, and yet then we skip ahead, and then we all of a sudden jump into the next part, which is Jesus is alive. So it's like, whoa, 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 you just told me to cry, and now you're telling me to celebrate. And I'm all confused, right? And so today, instead of trying to just walk through the story of the cross, make you feel guilty, hopefully get you to cry, and then convince you to make some emotional decision, instead I just want to walk rationally through this deal and look at why Jesus died. And so that's what we're going to do. But before we do that, we're going to pray. I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I was the same one who spoke the last two weeks. My hair does look different, so that's confusing to you. I got head lice this past week. And so um, that's just what, what, what ended up for me. Yeah, thanks a lot for laughing, right? It's an epidemic in my whole family, a whole family. And you're laughing like, oh, he's got bugs in his hair. I'm just joking. I don't really. I, um, I'm just lazy and hadn't washed it in several weeks. I thought if it's shorter, you can't notice. Let me pray. Um, Jesus. You're kind and you're gracious and you're loving and you're all those things. And um, God, man, we can't manufacture a move of you. We can't say the right words or do the right things and somehow save people or get them to change their behavior. And so, God, I, 
just up front, I just want to confess that out loud, that, Lord, we have zero capability for your spirit to move in this place. God, we don't know the formula. We don't know any of those things. All we know is your word says, when people gather in your name, God, you're present. And so, God, everything that I'm clinging to now is that you are who you say you are, and your word is your word to us. And, and then that you say that when you gather here. When we gather here, you're here. So, God, that's what I'm trusting. So, Jesus, the only... The only desire I have in this deal is to be really proud of the cross and what it means for us. And so, God, it's not through any eloquent speech that's about to happen here, awkward speech or whatever. Jesus, we recognize it's only a move of you. If you move, Jesus, because you saw fit. God, for the folks in this room, uh, the folks who grew up in church and have the, the religious emotional baggage that comes with it, God, I pray that just for a few minutes you would release that from them. Just for a few minutes to sit still and look at your cross in a rational yet unreasonable way. And God, for the folks who are just, they're cynical. They don't, they wouldn't, they don't get this. They don't believe it. They don't think Jesus is real or Jesus, they don't, they hear that you might have been a good man, but that you weren't God incarnate, that you weren't God who stepped out of heaven onto this earth. God, um, man, would you just open their hearts? Would you open our hearts, God? Would you allow us just for a minute to get a glimpse of your goodness? And then, God, would we respond with gratitude? So I'm at my prayer. So, Jesus, uh, you say your word never returns void. I'm trusting in that. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. So I told you that you, this shouldn't evoke. I mean, it's okay if it evokes emotion for you, right? I mean, it's, it's a tough thing to see. It's tough to stomach. It's all those things. But I, I just want to just read to you the story. And I love this because John is the one. We've been in the Gospel of John, been working through it. We actually finish it up next week. We've worked through it for, I think, the last 30 or 40 weeks or something like that. But John, who was one of Jesus' best friends, like they were BFF. They had lockets. They shared them, you know, the whole deal. Like they were very close. John was one of his disciples. He was the youngest of the disciples. He was the one that the Bible continues to talk about. John actually refers to himself this way a lot of times in the Gospel of John as the one whom Jesus loved. You know, so this is John, one of Jesus' best friends, one of his biggest supporters, a guy who literally eventually gets exiled, like gets boiled alive, gets like boils all over his arms and legs and body because they put him in hot oil to get him to shut up about Jesus. And he never, ever does. And so John is writing to us and telling us way past when Jesus dies, way past when Jesus comes back to life, way past when the church starts to move, right? Um, when the church starts to kind of get some kind of foundation where people are spreading all over Europe and all over Africa with the news of the gospel. All this is happening, and John writes us a story about Jesus' death. And the interesting thing is there is no emotion charged in it at all. In fact, it's going to read a lot like a newspaper article, just simply the facts. And so for just a second, let's just remove the emotion from it. Same way John somehow was able to about his best friend and his heavenly father who he was standing there when Jesus was dying. And John, Jesus looks at John and says, John, now I need you to take care of my mom. Because that, you know, is the emotion that would be invoked to me, right? It's not like, I'm good with death. Completely good with it. In fact, I mean, the Bible says to live as Christ, to die as gain. I actually, I believe that. Like, I can't wait to get into heaven. Like, I can't, like, I am pumped about it. Like, I am, I'm going to wear a toga in heaven. Because I think that's what you wear in heaven. Like a real one, not the one with the sheets, right? Um, and I'm going to go to heaven and it's going to be awesome. But the part that always gets me, right? Is thinking about my little ones, Briggs and Amelia, being here without their father. Right, I mean, that's the emotion that's like, oh, yep, that's it. I'm not afraid of death, but man, like, 
I want to, I want to walk my daughter down the aisle. You know, I want, well, I don't, actually, I take that back. She's not walking down an aisle. Like, <laughs> baby, let's walk down the aisle. See, this is where you're going to live forever. Yep, here's some cats. <laughs> you think I'm joking right there, right? I'm sure I can find some scripture to back that up somewhere um, in Hezekiah. It's in Hezekiah in the Old Testament. Um, there is no Hezekiah. So you're like, oh, I need to look that up. That's good. There's not, I mean, there is a guy named Hezekiah in the son of a book. Um, but John is standing there looking at Jesus and watching him take his last breaths and die. And yet, somehow, he's able to sit still and just capture the story. Let me just read it for you. It'll be above my head. And then I'll tell you where we're going to go with it after that. I'm going to be reading for a while. This is just a story. Just the facts. Here's how it goes. John 19, verse 17 is where I'm beginning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you don't have a Bible, luckily we have it on the screens, but we also have tons of Bibles. English Standard, same one that we typically read from on Sunday mornings here, out in the, at our guest services area, or get connection point, or whatever we call it. We'd love for you to grab one. In fact, if it's even awkward, even pretend like you're stealing it. It doesn't bother us at all. We're like, yeah, you know, if you need to stuff it underneath your shirt, you're like, I don't want to ask for a Bible, that's fine. It's the most stolen book ever in the history of the world. We will continue that, that run there. John 19, 17. And he went out, Jesus is who they're talking about, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and and with him two others, one on either side. And Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So it's saying everybody got to read it because it was in a big populated area. And they wrote it in three different languages. So one of the languages that they understood was written there. So the... Chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, because that's not our king, is what they're saying. But rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Rather, don't say that he's the king. What I want you to say is, he says he's the king, right? That, that's, that's bothering them, because now all of a sudden, he's just been established in this moment when he's down on the cross as the king. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. You've seen the emotion here. It's just a bunch of facts, right? So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was the fill of scripture that says, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What they're saying is, John is making sure that people understand. Listen, hundreds and hundreds of years before, there were, the Old Testament was written, and they talked about this very moment to show that God had both foreknowledge and sovereignty, and that God was working everything, that he's working everything together for his good. And they said, so John just wants us to be clear. Hey, look, look, I want you to know, people have talked about this. Someone much greater than Nostradamus, someone who heard from Jesus, talks about this and captures it hundreds of years before. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So basically a bunch of Marys. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, I love that John throws that in there. The disciple whom he loved. Hey, hey, why are we in this? Let me just make sure you understand. Jesus really loved me. The disciple whom he loved. Every time Jesus got, every time I got to the last flower, it was he loves me, you know. <laughs> then he said to the disciple, like, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son again. That's not like a, we hear the word woman and we're like, go make us a sandwich. That's what goes off in your head, right? That's not what this is. This is a term of affection, woman. Like, hey, not only, I'm not calling you mother because you're not just my mother. You're the person I'm dying for. Like, it's a bigger term here, right? Woman, 
Go meet your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John's the one who's writing this. That's the one that happened to. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, and the the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Here's what's going on here, okay? Just for a second. They're saying, hey, they go up to Pilate, and they're like, hey, here's the deal. Um, We have church in the morning, (laughs) and it's not really going to look real good if we're going to have church tomorrow since it's, you know, the Sabbath. They have all these people hanging in the front yard. So can we go ahead and clean all that up a little bit? And and Pilate would be like, hey, they're not quite dead yet. Well, if you break their legs, here's what would happen, and I... Actually, no, it doesn't matter because I think it, even saying that just would invoke more emotion deal. So basically, he just, he, he basically says, hey, they need to die, the Jews do. And so they decided to break the legs so that the guys who are there who kept breathing for their last breath, they basically push up all their legs, get another breath. It'd be like being in a swimming pool. Someone holding you under, holding you under, holding you under. Then all of a sudden you like shoot up, take a breath, holding you under. You know what I'm talking about? That kind of feeling. That's what was going on while they were being crucified. So they said, man, break their legs so they can't do that anymore and they'll suffocate to death. And so, um, so that's what's going on here. And so they said, break their legs that they might be taken away. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with them. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once, they came out, at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it was born witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. So again, John's saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm letting you know this, okay? For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So again, here's the deal. John's saying, look, I'm not trying to invoke motion in you. I just want you to know that all these things are talked about. I don't know how you can be so blind and think that Jesus is not God because everything's talking about in the Old Testament. And he's talking to Jews here too. Hey, Jews, you're the one who keep looking for God to come to earth to be your Messiah. And they're like, hey, you're missing it because he's all written about in your Old Testament and you're still missing it. So that's what's going on. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot of weight of myrrh and aloes, okay? Um, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. What you really see here is a guy who, I mean, if, it's weird because in me, because I, I know where we're going material, it's hard because you're stomaching it right here for the first time. Like, I want to tell jokes, you know, but I'm like, oh, it's kind of would be, seem a little disrespectful to even say anything funny or compare it to anything in this deal. So I'm going to, um, 50 pounds of weight, verse 41 says this. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Okay, really, the irony of this is, Jesus borrowed a tomb. Isn't <laughs> that awesome? Hey, guys, um, I'm not going to need this for long. So it doesn't really make sense for me to go buy my own. You know, like, I don't really need one. I mean, I'm really 72 hours max. 
probably more like 60 is where we're going to be at. So 60 hours in your tomb, is that okay? Like that, I love it. It's like, man, that's awesome. That is a good time to lease a, a tomb. That is the time you lease a tomb is when you know you're not going to be in there long. And so that is the story of Jesus, right? That's the story of the cross. There it is. We got it. And so now usually what happens is we say that, we say that Jesus paid it all on the cross. Then we pray a prayer. We hope that other people pray that same prayer. And then we sing. And then we come back the next week, which is Easter and celebrate that he's risen, right? But somewhere in the deal, aren't you kind of wondering why he died? Like somewhere in our churches, somewhere in this deal for me, I never really was taught this is why he died. Okay, I get it. I get that Jesus died for my sins, but that just doesn't make a lot of sense. You mean because I cheated in chemistry, Jesus had to go get nailed to a cross. Because I lied to my mom when I was eight, Jesus had to get nailed to a cross. Right now, as the older I get, the more messy I realize. But I remember just growing up thinking, that's really confusing to me. That's a pretty mean God. Couldn't he have just given him, given him a spanking? Because that's all I think I probably deserved in the deal. And so it was, it, was really hard for me to, it was really hard for me to gather why in the world would God kill his son. And to be honest with you, reasonably, I can't understand it. Because guess what? I would not kill Briggs for any of you. That means I don't love you. But I'm just going to be real honest with you. There's no way. There's no way. I would not exchange my children's life for your life. I just wouldn't. And I'm supposed to be the nice, good pastor who's supposed to you know, serve others. And I get that. That's fine. I'd give my life for you to get this today. I promise you that. I really would. Because, again, heaven sounds really good to me. But the idea of sacrificing my kids for you is both illogical and unreasonable to me. So when you look at this through reason, it just becomes really complicated. So instead, instead, instead of us trying to reasonably understand and explain, we'll become... There we go, sorry about that. Instead of trying to do that, I just want to read you something that Paul writes. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm just going to read it to you. And we're just going to walk through it, and I actually think we'll get a good bit of resolve. Christian, non-Christian, where you are, I think this will make a lot of sense to you. So here it goes. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, uh, beginning in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is Paul, who is like the guy who writes two-thirds of the New Testament. What Saul hated Jesus, persecuted Christians, and all of a sudden has this moment with Jesus, like at post-Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus meets him on a road, looks Saul in the eyes, and he blinds him, and then says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul becomes Paul, this guy who hated Jesus, becomes madly in love with Jesus, and spends the rest of his life going and starting churches to tell people about Jesus. That's what's going on, right? And so Paul is writing this, and he says, uh, you, he did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In other words, he didn't send me to save you. Jesus didn't send me into the room to, to somehow convince you that you're a sinner in need of a savior. He didn't say that. He said just to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. So he's saying this. He's saying, look, I can make you, I can probably convince you somehow emotionally to respond, right? I mean, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a Baptist church, which I really appreciate. I like, I learned so much about the Bible. My dad was a Baptist pastor, and I can remember growing up going to buffets after church because that's what you did, right? And you just piled on a bunch of food, then left a big mess and tipped very little. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what, what Christians do. Um, um, and so, but I can remember always a conversation being like, man, did the spirit not move today? And this was the qualifier. This is what they would say. I kid you not, I've heard it 
more than 50 times. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. Right? There wasn't a dry eye. Everybody was crying. You know what? I can tell you about a story about a kid dying and every single one of you cry. It doesn't mean that you love Jesus anymore. It doesn't mean that you believe in his cross anymore. And it doesn't save you or make this world any better, right? In terms of what we believe. But for some reason, emotions we can control, so we try to in the deal. Well, if I can get at their emotions, then at least I can assess whether or not that was an effective, you know, persuasion, persu- persuasive speech, right? And so Paul said, well, well here's the deal. Again, if it takes me being smart or funny or capable or having it all together to help you understand who Jesus is, I am actually taken away from the only thing that really matters, which is the cross, because there is nothing else that has any power. In other words, Paul is saying, you might think I'm a superhero, but I have zero authority and zero power other than the cross. And he continues. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, this is the power of God. In other words, he says this. Hey, hey, let me just be up front. Some of you are going to look at this and say, wow, that's really unreasonable. God, God wouldn't send his son and kill him. That sounds more like a, uh, are you going to also tell me about Methuselah? Like, and then are you going to tell me about a bunch of Greek gods and goddesses? Are you going to throw out a bunch of other things and try to convince me that somehow that works? Really? Like, sounds like a myth or a folklore. And what Paul's saying is, look, look, look. I get it sounds really unreasonable. And if you don't see this, and if you, can't, you, if you don't see it, if, if you don't see God as that God, and you don't see it, then there's no way I can convince you of it. The only solution is to continue to point you back to the cross. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is God speaking. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. In other words, look, do you think you're really smart? Your earthly knowledge has little, if anything, to do. And it is pales in comparison, like it's infinitely tiny compared to my vast knowledge. And whatever knowledge you do have, I'll put a stop to it as well. That's what God's saying. Where is the one who is wise? And who's the smart one who can explain that there is no me? (laughs) Hey, I'm here. I'm talking. Look around. You see the earth. You see the sun. You see it revolving. Can someone explain to me how that sun is there? Can you tell me how it stays there? So I'm going to go, oh, well, God, um, here's the point. Uh, it, it really doesn't just stay in one place. The sun is ever moving. Oh, so it is. Who decides where it moves? Well, well, God, um, we have a couple theories about that. And God's like, look, if we want to have an intellectual conversation, I mean, I'm an intellectual conversation, but it's just, Really not going to get us anywhere. In fact, I have a four-and-a-half-year-old right now. His name is Briggs. Okay. Oh, man, I'm really growing up in my discernment in terms of what I'm offering and the words I'm using. I'm really proud of myself right here, boys and girls. Um, some of you are a little let down, but I get it. We're, we'll, we'll get there together. But Briggs is four-and-a-half and incredibly irrational. Last night, or yesterday afternoon, we went down to check out the basement. Uh, we've been trying to renovate it. I'm trying to put an office down there at our house. And Julie and I went down there. Savannah, who leads worship with us, is one of our apprentices, lives in our home. And Savannah was upstairs. And so were, um, so were Briggs and Amelia. And Briggs just lost it. Like, completely lost it because he wanted to go to the basement. But it wasn't that he was upset about he couldn't go to the basement. He was upset that there was a gate that was two and a half feet tall that kept him from the other side of the, the room, right? Completely illogical. You know, and what you want to do is I want to sit down and be like, Briggs, the words coming out of your mouth sound really stupid right now. 
I'm going to videotape this right now because I'm going to show it to your wife. And when you get 40, you're going to have the same argument. And she's going to say, see, honey, always irrational. Always irrational, right? All you had to do was step over the gate or ask for help, right? That's all you had to do. Nope, what'd you do? You scream, you fell on the floor, and you cried. And I just wanted to sit there, and I wanted to walk him through logically why what he was doing make, made zero sense. Pointless endeavor, right? Be like me trying to teach him calculus. Briggs, you know, really, it's all about the area of a curve. It's really what it is. I mean, that's all it is. When you can break things down into really, really small parts, then you can really take the area of anything. But by the way, let me, let me teach you about limits as well. Which, well, what is that? You see what I'm saying? Like, there's just no way that I can explain that to a four-and-a-half-year-old. So God's like, look, which one of you are wise? Because your knowledge is like an infant compared to me who created it all, right? And so we continue. Where is, the, uh, where is the scribe, where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, look, look, nobody comes to faith because all of a sudden it just makes perfect sense. Oh, yeah, now I see. Yep, God, God had to have a son and he had to die. Right? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a tough leap. Right? And so what Paul's saying is, look, look, it is foolishness for me to even stand up here and explain this to you because I cannot reasonably convince you of it. He continues. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. Okay, which one are we here, right? Maybe a little bit of both. Sometimes we're like, God, look, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, here, I'll just be really honest with you. I was outside as, uh, 10 weeks ago now or eight weeks ago when we got the eviction notice on a Thursday. Knew we were moving from Rome. Didn't know what that meant for Somerville, what we were going to do. And so within a few minutes, probably an hour, we were laying out here on this, um, this concrete pad on our faces asking God if this would be the place. Now, at this point, there was no sign that said for rent. In fact, it said auction house coming soon. So that was just what was about to be here. And we were like, okay, this could work. Maybe. And before that day, it was never even something that I would have even considered. I'm like, nope, it doesn't make any sense. It's in the middle of nowhere, you know, kind of deal. You know, and so on that day, we were laying our faces and praying. And it was storming outside. And I remember even that conversation. Okay, God, um, I really don't know what to do here because this is a big leap. Uh, we've always asked people to trust us, and we've made some boneheaded decisions. And so, God, we really need you to be in charge here. And it was pouring out rain. I remember saying, hey, God, here's the deal. If you just make it stop raining, then I'll know it's you, right? And um, so we kept praying, and then it got to Jared, who isn't as good a prayer as the rest of us. Just saying, like, if, if we're grading our prayers, Jared falls about the five or six range. Out of 10, out of 10, not out of 100, okay? Um, Jared is praying, and, um, and then he said amen, and we kind of finished up the prayer time, and it was completely stuff raining. And part of me is like, yeah, God, you did it. I'm like, oh, come on. That could have just been Mother Nature, right? Or really, it stops raining every day. You know, like even that's so where we're like, God, if you just give us a sign, we get the sign, right? God, if you would just start a church in the middle of nowhere in an old auction house, then I will believe you're real. Oh, come on. That could have happened by a lot of other ways, right? And so the Jews is like, just give us one more sign. And the Greeks say this. God, just give us more wisdom. Look, if you're real... Just let me understand it. Give me another book to read. Give me something else to study. Help me understand it more. So the Jews are saying, give us more miracles. The Greeks are saying, give us more wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In other words, well, you mean I needed a miracle. A miracle doesn't look like someone dying. So for the Jews, it became a stumbling block. For the Greeks, it's like, nope, completely unreasonable. 
Nope, because I'm a father. I'm a pretty good father at that. I wouldn't kill my kid. Pretty unreasonable. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. I'm going to finish up that, that passage in a second, but I want you to hold your spot there. Here's what he's saying. There's two ways to see the cross. One is through reason. But you've got really tiny brains. I mean, I know that sounds rough, but hey, Briggs, I can explain this to you, but you're never going to fully understand this out of him. I'm not saying throw it out. It's not like saying, well, just ignore science blindly. If you look hard enough, you chase after truth enough, God always reveals himself. I'm not saying we ignore those things. I say we embrace them. Because here's kind of the deal. Uh, someone said, I don't know who it is. Um, I actually have no idea. Um, but it says this, that theology is the crown jewel of all academics. Okay, So this isn't anti-academics anyway. In fact, what it, what it said, the, the idea of the quote is this. When you chase something down far enough, you always find God. For example, chase history back far enough. Where do you get? God. Or at least, I don't know. Chase mathematics down far enough. Did you know that you can, like, you can show on paper, theoretically, hundreds of different dimensions? But we can only see three, right? Four? Two? Where are you at on that? You see what I'm saying? Like, you study, your mathematics, you study mathematics far enough down, you get to the point where you're just like, no. Even infinite. Even infinity. What is that? Right? Where did that number come from? How about science? Really? Okay, I get it. I mean, there's this whole, like the, the Higgs boson, or uh, it's like this God particle where they think helps explain the Big Bang Theory a little bit, right? Okay, okay, okay. You think somehow two things can, boom, right? Okay, that's fine. I'm Oh, man, I really am. Anyway, you think that that happened, right? Well, where did those two particles come from? Where did those two atoms come from? Music. How many notes are there? Why aren't there any more? Why not? Can't we add some more notes? Like a lot more? Like, can't we make the scale a little bigger? And I'm not talking about over and over again. I'm talking about, can't we combine some more in those? Where did all that come from? Language. How oh, there's so many. And all of a sudden, you start studying all these things. And theology, every single bit of it, when you study God, it actually is the only thing that helps reason all those things together. So I'm not saying be anti-academics in this deal. I'm not saying, but when you try to reasonably understand something that's beyond our reason, when you try to ask for more wisdom on something that's just beyond our capacity to understand, then you will stay where you are and say, nope, this doesn't make any sense. So one way you look at it is reason. The other is this, faith. And here's what faith says. Faith isn't just being naive or silly or ignorant. Faith is believing in something even though our senses tell us otherwise. For example, God says right now, some people gather in his name, he's present. Guess what that means? That means God is in this room. Can you see him? Can you smell him? Can you audibly hear him? The only things you hear right now, my voice guarantee is not God's in the air conditioning. 
Can you hear him? Can you touch him? But faith says that you can believe in things that your senses tell us otherwise, and God says, that's me. So as you view the cross through reason, it's really confusing. But if you begin to view the cross through faith, it makes perfect sense. For example, the cross is the only thing that actually reasonably nailed through faith explains a bunch of stuff. Is God sovereign? The word sovereign means, you know, completely powerful, that he can bend things to the way that he sees fit always. Absolutely. Because even when our world was a mess, God had a plan. What was his plan? Proves it on the cross. How about this? The Bible says God's an angry God. Well, how could he be both loving and angry? Only one place shows both sides. When you see it through the eyes of faith, all of a sudden the cross makes sense. Oh, wow. Man, he hates sin. And he believes there's consequences for that sin. But he's also loving enough that he paid those consequences. How about this? It says that God's a jealous God. Guess what proves it? The cross. The cross proves it. Hey, look, I am so jealous for your attention. I am so jealous for your gratitude. I'm so jealous for you to see that I am the king of the universe and I am the Lord of all, that I'm going to do whatever I possibly can to reveal myself to you. How did he do it? Through Jesus. He said, look, you think that I'm an angry God? Let me come show you how loving I am. Oh, you think that everybody can be that loving if they get something out of it. Let me show you that I'm not getting anything out of the deal. The cross. I'm living it. Is he all powerful? Well, sin couldn't stop him. Death couldn't hold him. The cross proves it. Gracious. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he also says the wages of our sin is death. But he also says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. And that doesn't make any sense except through the cross. Which says, you deserve death. I'm paying the price and I'm giving you grace. Forgiveness. Forgiving. It's unreasonable. You could spit in a guy's face who spoke the world into existence. You could spit in it. You could call him names, which all of us have. You can get angry and somehow he can still look at you and say, I'll never leave you or forsake you. There's nothing, not life, not death, not enemies, not nothing. There's nothing you could do to separate you from my love, right? It's unreasonable. Only place that it makes sense through faith is looking at the cross where God proves both sides. And so it wouldn't make sense for us to try to have some kind of battle and argument because I'm not in it for the debate. And you shouldn't be either in the deal because either you can see Christ crucified and you can rejoice or you can't. And what you've been taught for a really long time or what we feel is it's like this weird sadness, right? Uh, we were talking this week and um, Jared, who is our pastor of care here, um, he was sharing like he thinks about what his parents did for him, like continue to sacrifice for him. And he said, you know, the first thing I think about in terms of their sacrifice is sadness. Right? Like we think that, oh, I'm so sad that my parents kept putting up with my behavior. I'm so sad they kept having to come through and bail me out or whatever that looks like. Right? We have the sadness. And I told you, and I think we, we all resolved it pretty well there, is that when Briggs gets to be 30 years old, I hope he feels no sadness from, our, from his parents' point of view. But you know what I do hope he feels? 
a lot of gratitude. I don't want him to be sad that we worked hard. I don't want Amelia to be sad that we worked hard, we sacrificed a lot. No, I want him to be grateful and see it as a, as, as a reward, as, as us being gracious to him, right, and her. And so I think at the end of the day, the deal here is either you can view this and trust it and be grateful for it, or you can be sad, or you can think it's unreasonable. And I just think there's nothing more than Jesus wants you to do today. And just be grateful and relieved. In other words, I want you to do this. I really want you to participate in this. Think of the worst thing you've ever done and call it like in your head and then call it by uh, uh, um, uh, the most horrible name. I'm talking about a customer. I'm talking about the most horrible way that you could describe that. Whatever it is. Ran over a dog on purpose. Call yourself a murderer. I'm not saying that, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not saying, like, let's come up with that. Like, let's come up with the worst thing that you have done that you can think of. And all of a sudden, you're like, I don't really want to think about that at church. And that's exactly why I didn't want to come to church because you're going to make me feel guilty about it. Just the opposite, okay? So let's play, play along. Worst thing you ever did. Think about it. Your reason tells you that. Your reasoning ability tells you you should feel pain and suffering for it. That you should feel sadness and sorrow. But the cross says, you're not guilty of that anymore. That is not who you are. If you will trust in me, the Bible says, if you whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, meaning that all that forgiveness is offered to them over to the cross. Reasonably, you would say, no, I deserve to continue to feel punishment and pain for that. And the cross says, no, you don't. Reasonably, you say, no, I really should be sad about this. I should introduce myself every day and describe myself as, hi, I'm Josh, I'm an adulterer. Hi, I'm Josh, I'm an addict. We feel like the rest of our lives, we have to be defined by those moments in it, right? Reasonably, that makes sense. But through faith, the cross says, you trust in me? You get what I did for you? You're not guilty anymore. You know, I'm going to... Explain it. I'm actually about to teach this. To, if you have children out there, um, I'm going to teach this to them. I'm actually, we're about to worship here. But I'm going to go out there and hang out with the preschoolers, the, the early elementary, the older elementary school students, all that kind of stuff. And we have a lot of fun. Um, I'm going to teach them this. Because I, my dad taught this to me when I was little. And it made sense to me then. It still makes sense to me. And it's the best way I can explain this to them. It makes sense. Y'all can have conversations about it. And I think uh, with faith, this makes the most sense I have. Um, I'm going to probably ham this up a little bit more with them, but not, not with you guys here. There once was a guy, he was empty. He was broken. He worked really hard, and he tried lots and lots of things, drugs, chased after as many women as he could, got lots of education, got lots of money, and still was really, really empty, right? Kept wondering, why am I still so empty? What's going on? And so he decided, well, you know what I need to do? I need to go on an adventure. So he went and bought a sailboat, and he sailed around the world. Came back after one year and still was empty. So, oh, you know what? I just need to go. I need to go the other way. I need to go north-south. Not really wise. Lots of land in the way. All that kind of stuff, right? But I just need to go the other way. So he sails around the world the other way. He comes back and he's like, man, it's obviously not something I can find in terms of hope and excitement and joy and abundance. Got everything I need. Got a nice yacht and still not enough. And he thought, oh, this is what it is. I've just been running too long. I've been out doing things. What I really need. I just need a house, Right? That's all I need. I just need to settle down. Oh, you know what I need now? I need to find a wife. We need to have our two and a half kids. We need to have a picket fence. We need to have a dog. We have all those things. So he bought a house. So he had this house, and he thought, finally, things should be good. 
kept looking around, still empty as he can possibly be. And so then he thinks, wow, still must be my circumstances because, I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the, the boat didn't do it. Now my family's not doing it. They did for a little while. I had some goosebumps around my wife for a day or two or a month or two or a year or two. But then it just kind of ran out. And now I just feel empty again. It must be that that's the wrong, that's the wrong environment. So he thought, you know what? I just need to get a little bit more of an adrenaline rush. So he went and got an airplane. Started jumping out of them, and then he started flying around the world. And he thought, I'm gonna fly more and more times. And he was flying around the world. And he thought, I'm gonna be the first man to fly around the world seven times without ever getting out and peeing all over myself, right? I mean, that's it. Because you're gonna, if you're flying around the world and you can't get out, you're gonna use the bathroom all over yourself. But he didn't care because he was gonna be in the record books, right? Flying around the world, flying around the world, and after time after time of flying, going and seeing everything. You know, you know what I need to do? I need to, I need to see every runway in America. I need to go to every airport in the in the world and spent years and years flying and flying and lots of money. And he still was empty. So in this moment, he gets angry. He destroys his plane. He tears it all up. He throws it all away and he's just broken. And he's like, I got all the money I ever wanted. I got all the education I could ever need and there's still something missing. Reasonably, this makes no sense. And then somewhere in the deal, he discovered that he couldn't reason enough or gain enough or acquire enough because none of those things were ever going to fill the void that he had. And reasonably, it never made any sense. But one day he discovered a cross. And that cross, not through reason, but through faith of saying, wow, you mean there's a God who showed his love in that way? There's a God who died on my behalf? There's a God who surrendered his life to me, for me? There's a God who says, hey, you can trust in me and walk in me and believe in me. There's that God. Through reason, it doesn't make any sense, but through faith, I want to trust him in that. I'm not going to lead you in a prayer because I don't really think I have any words that can convince you of any of this. All I'm saying is if you view it through the cross, finally something makes sense. And we're all here because most of our life doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know why God told us to start a church in Rome. Didn't make sense to me. I didn't want to stay in the town. I definitely didn't know why God told us to move to Summerville. Buy a house and start a church there. Just saying. I, mean, I love it. My, that's my hometown. What are you talking about? You know, I got your back there, right? I love my property taxes in Summerville. I am not kidding, right? I have no idea why God told us to do that. And then I definitely don't know what happened when I'm like, oh, I'm going to shut your doors down, right? Reasonably... It's all real stupid. You mean you're going to take two churches and move them to the middle of nowhere? Well, I guess so. Because my faith is telling me, even though my senses can't grab it and hold on to it, that God's ready to do something pretty incredible. Through the cross, this makes sense. So I'm going to pray over you. And all I'm going to pray in this moment, and then we're going to sing, is I'm going to pray that God would give you faith. That's it. That you would see your circumstances through the cross. Got a really messy marriage? Have faith. See it through the cross. Christ died for it. Have a bunch of baggage. Have a lot of secrets. See it through faith. Christ died for it. You can't earn your salvation. You can't take enough pills. You can't drink enough drinks. You can't find enough girls or guys to resolve any of that. Only one thing does. It's the cross. Let me pray for you. Jesus, um,
I, I don't get you. Like, I mean, I'm a father, and I, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine putting my son through pain. Reasonably, I can't get that. And I definitely can't understand, God, that you would want me to rejoice in the cross. That you'd want us, as Paul says, to boast in nothing but the cross. Really, like we're supposed to boast on you being crucified. That's what we're supposed to preach or say. There was a man who was God. Like God stepped out of heaven and we nailed him to a tree. And all of a sudden everything resolves because of that. God, that is just hard with my reason. But through faith, I can't come up with a better solution. God, the best solution I have is you. And so my prayer is, God, that you'd give us faith to trust what you say. That you are good and your love is great. God, we're, we're a mess. Help us give all of us to you in these moments. God, help us to see what you did through faith. Through eyes that don't belong to us, but eyes you've given us. So give us faith, God. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?